Earlier this week, Japan began releasing radioactive water residue from the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster into the Pacific Ocean. This sounds bad. This sounds, indeed, like the opening scene of a film which ends with an immense lizard laying waste to Tokyo by shooting laser beams out of its eyes. However, as Japanese authorities have been at pains to state, and as pertinent global bodies, notably the IAEA, have confirmed, the water has been properly treated and is safe. The discharge has been nevertheless controversial. In Japan, public opinion is split. In China, the government has banned Japanese seafood. In South Korea, the government has fallen in behind the science and supported Japan, but opposition parties are stoking fear. Local reports suggest that some major South Korean fish markets were all but abandoned this week. All of which reminds of the peculiar political potence of fish. And this is the hook for this week's Deep Dive. Clearly, it is an issue of considerable scale about which there are many schools of thought and any number of lines. What is it about fishing that catches so much political attention? Why are so many people so willing to take the bait? And will these angles reel in listeners? This is The Foreign Desk. Fishing is all about local communities especially when it comes to Fukushima, number one uh, nuclear plant. But overall, if you look at the total number of those engaged in fishing business, it's one half of the number engaged in managing consultancy. So it's a small community. But Japan and the people in Japan have been eating uh, lots of uh, fish for centuries, so there is a psychological attachment. I think there was a poll before the referendum that said that 9 in 10, it was like 92% of fishermen were going to vote leave. So it was a very successful campaign based on the promises of what they stood to gain, one of which was that EU vessels would no longer be able to operate within 6 to 12 miles of the UK coastline and that the UK would get a much larger share of the fish that they can catch in their own waters, and neither of those things happened. And that was seen as the great betrayal. We are seeing massive shifts in ocean populations moving poleward to find cooler waters. All around the world, we see evidence of the huge impact of human choices on our oceans and in turn back on us. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined, first of all, from Tokyo by Tomohiko Tanguchi, a professor at the Keio University Graduate School of System Design and Management. Tomohiko is a foreign policy specialist who formerly served as special advisor to the cabinet of the late Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. First of all, to this water that Japan is discharging into the Pacific, is there anything at all actually dangerous about it? It is uh, more about perception than about scientific reason. Local fishing community does understand this is not scientifically dangerous, but they are concerned about perception. And perception is sometimes much, much more important than reality. So the answer to your question is not so much dangerous, And if it is not seawater, one could actually drink that treated water. 
When you talk about the perception, though, is that specifically within Japan? I'm, I'm asking because there's a certain squeamish dread about nuclear power everywhere in the world, but I'm wondering if in Japan, for obvious reasons, that is more pronounced. Perception here is being weaponized, quote-unquote, I would say, by some countries that look at Japan in a very much hostile manner, meaning China. China is attacking Japan from a very much politically motivated standpoint, and China being the biggest consumer of Japanese fishing products, there is a good reason why fishing community in Japan, especially those involved in the fishing business, near the Fukushima plant must be very much concerned about. How much of the concerns being raised about this are to do with, I guess, a sentimental attachment to fishing as an industry? It's very common, I think, in island countries, especially the United Kingdom being a fairly obvious example for fishing to acquire an importance in the public consciousness, which is disproportionate to how important it actually is to the economy. One thing that is probably in common between the situation in the UK and that in Japan is fishing is all about local communities, especially when it comes to Fukushima, number one nuclear plant. It's uh, close to the fishing neighborhood that's got more population than elsewhere. But overall, if you look at the total number of those engaged in fishing business, it's one half of the number engaged in managing consultancy. <laughs> so it's a small community. But one has to quickly say that Japan and the people in Japan have been eating lots of fish for centuries. So there is a psychological attachment and bond to the fishing business. And nobody ever wrote a rousing shanty about management consultants, I guess. But how big a part of Japan's current cultural identity do you think this idea of it as a nation of fisher folk is? Well, not so much. People would be very much angry if uh, they can't eat and taste fish and fishing products. But you could also import fish products from abroad and especially if you ask that question to Tokiowitz, some would say, no, I wouldn't care that much. But nevertheless, is that perception that fishing is an important part of Japanese identity at all the reason that Japan has been so consistently willing to sustain the reputational damage that comes with persisting in whaling, which, as I understand it, is a, a subset of the fishing industry which directly employs an absolutely tiny amount of people, but nonetheless Japan still seems willing to flout international opinion on commercial whaling? Right. Japan withdraw from the body, International Whaling Commission, some time ago, and chose not to send ships to the Antarctic region, which was very much a trouble-making sort of endeavor, especially between Australia and New Zealand. And Japan, for some time, whaling business was the best possible way for Japan to lose its cherish the friends and allies among those countries that otherwise Japan should 
ally very much closely with. Now, whaling business is being conducted strictly within Japan's exclusive economic zone. And ironically, because it is a commercial whaling, commercial principles do matter. Namely, if you don't have demand, you can't have supply. And Japan's having a shrinking demand about whaling meat. So uh, whalers, of which number, as you say, is very much limited, are struggling very much hard to make both ends meet. To return then to the discharge at Fukushima, is this hurting the Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida, at any level? His opinion poll ratings are struggling. Uh, His disapproval rating has actually cleared 50%. Is this part of it or is he unpopular for other reasons? Interestingly, this decision has been regarded as something bold. The Prime Minister has been losing his popularity, not because he has bit the bullet, but because he has wavered on some of the important issues. Clearly, this discharge of the treated water is something that the Japanese government said it would do for the last two years. And I think Prime Minister Kishida today has shown his courage, if you like. Tomohiko Tanguchi, thank you for joining us. That was the foreign policy specialist Tomohiko Tanguchi speaking to us from Tokyo. This is The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. In the build-up to the UK's Brexit referendum of 2016, the Leave campaign promised much too many, and it will all doubtless turn up any day now. But particular attention was lavished on the UK's fishing sector, an economically tiny but sentimentally crucial industry. Well, I'm joined in the studio now by Sebastian Whale, a UK trade reporter at Politico Europe. Sebastian, first of all, going back to the Brexit referendum, why did fishing become such a big thing? I think the fishing industry was symbolic, or at least the Leave campaign wanted to make it symbolic of what the UK lost when it entered the European Union and then what it stood to gain outside of it. And I think there were clear manifestations of a loss of sovereignty or a pooling of sovereignty in that we ceded control of our territorial waters and we allowed EU vessels in. And Brussels centrally set the amount of fish we could catch and the rules governing fishing. And the idea was that this corresponded with, and we could talk about whether this was causation or coincidence, the decline of the UK fishing industry as it was in the mid to early 20th century. So, as often with Brexit, quite a few things were conflated, things were simplified, and it was a quite clear case of, this is what we've lost and this is what we stood to gain. And it's also very evocative, right? You know, imagine ships setting sail on on the high seas and these coastal towns that were no longer what they used to be. There was a very evocative and potent kind of message, really, that the Leave campaign tapped into very, very successfully. You mentioned there, and you are right to do so, that causation, correlation, not necessarily the same thing, that post hoc is not necessarily ergo propter hoc. Is it possible to say for sure 
whether being inside the European Union had been bad for British fishing? You know, I spoke to a, a number of people across the UK's fleet, mm. different aspects of it. So I think it's easy as well to talk about the UK fishing industry as just one holistic thing, whereas it's broken sure. down into several different components. And there's definitely issues that fishermen had with the common fisheries policy. The EU isn't perfect. These rules were set centrally in Brussels, and so how much do they know about what's really happening out there on the water? So there was, there was issues around kind of views as sort of being paternalistic and centralised and not understanding actually kind of what was happening for fishermen. But at the same time, there had been a vast period of overfishing, which meant the fish stocks were being depleted and they had to be managed centrally mm. because they were you know, at risk of running out of fish. And now we understand that way more in terms of making sure that fish stocks are sustainable and, and indeed the common fishing policy to an extent was seeking to do that. And you also had other things happening at the same time, which things like the Cod Wars, which saw you know UK distant water fleets massively depleted because they lost access to these really rich fishing grounds off Iceland. And this happened, there were three Cod Wars, I believe, from the mid 20th century to about early 1970s and that really decimated you know the likes of Grinsby, Hull and yet as I say these issues just got simplified and conflated with the fact that the UK fishing fleet depleted over the course of the time that the UK was in what was once the EEC and then the European Union and then going well this is all Brussels fault but of course as with everything to do with Brexit is way way more complicated than that. Do you think it did have an additional emotional charge in the United Kingdom because the UK is an island nation with a great seafaring history and that was an easy thing for the Leave campaign to tap into? Yeah undoubtedly and, and it should be also noted that EU fleets had you know real interest in keeping access to UK waters because they are fairly bountiful not necessarily near the coastline but lots of our fish and seafood is the envy of Europe and indeed ends up in the tables of restaurants across even France, Italy, Spain. I mean, the irony is that, you know, Brits are quite picky about their fish choices. We like cod, we like salmon. But then when we go on holiday, you know, to the Mediterranean in the summer, we'll have often the mussels or prawns or langoustines that are caught around the south coast or in Scotland or wherever and we, without realising it. So you're right to say we are an island nation. We have envious waters, if that's a possible phrase. And so, you know, once again, it played into that narrative of, of what we stood to gain and what we've lost as a result of pooling our sovereignty with the European Union. When you spoke to people, I guess, before and since the referendum who do this for a living, though, how did they feel about the fact that they were at the centre of what had become a more or less entirely emotional argument and not actually an economic one? Was there any amount of them going, hang on, everybody, just back up a second, we're not actually interested in a war with France, what we want is... Yeah, I think they felt used. I think they felt appropriated. And it was very successful. I think there was a poll before the referendum that said that 9 in 10, it was like 92% of fishermen were going to vote leave. So it was a very successful campaign based on the promises of what they stood to gain, one of which was that EU vessels would no longer be able to operate within 6 to 12 miles of the UK coastline and that the UK would get a much larger share of the fish that they can catch in their own waters. And neither of those things happened. And that was seen as the great betrayal. And they're sick of, you know, being appropriated by politicians. You know, the fishing industry in the UK, its contribution to the economy is around 0.03%. So it's diminutive. And when it pushed came to shove, these apparent red lines and negotiations were dropped in lieu of other sectors. That figure you cite right there is the extraordinary figure at the heart of this bizarre contradiction, whereby 
while obviously fishing is vitally important to the people who actually do this for a living, not many people in this country do. And yet it seemed like it was one of the most discussed issues of the entire referendum, almost to the exclusion of of all other things. In the time since, though, since the referendum and since the fact of Brexit, is it possible to quantify the effect Brexit has had for good and or ill on the fishing industry? Well, like with all facets of the UK economy, it's been complicated by things like COVID. Mm. You know, the statistics are kind of conflated with all the other things going on. And the war in Ukraine has had an impact as well. Price of oil and gas, for example, and, and various things. So the real way of measuring it is, is the difficulties they now face and what they've lost. And when I've spoken to, to fishermen, they talk about not understanding necessarily the trade-offs that were involved as part of being European Union. We spoke earlier about how important the EU market is for our fish mm. and seafood because we don't we don't eat much of it ourselves. And so leaving the single market has had huge consequences. For Important to note that leaving the single market was not something anybody suggested was going to happen during the referendum. Yeah, well, there, you know, there wasn't certainly a unified position on the, on the Leave campaign on that. And that's resulted in huge complications in getting fish and seafood to the continent. Obviously, that's not an ideal situation for such perishable goods. Mm. And, the, you know, the poster boy or girl for this situation is the exporters of what's called live bovine mollusks, so mussels and oysters. As a result of leaving the EU single market, the oysters and mussels that are caught from grade B waters rather than grade mm-hmm. A, they can't enter the European Union unpurified. Now, before it didn't matter what grade the water was, they could be cleaned on the continent before going to restaurants. And that can no longer happen. The second you start cleaning these things, the clock is ticking before they perish. So vast waves of exporters in Wales and Devon lost access to their key market and they didn't function for a year. So these are the tangible things that we can point to. There are others who have benefited. And this is where it comes down to political decisions, because ultimately, the UK can decide who wins or loses in these annual fisheries negotiations that are now taking place. We're an independent trading nation. And we can do that. So there are the Pelagics who are based in Scotland. They're doing pretty damn well at the moment. But then there's other people who aren't doing so well. And it's kind of who wins, who loses. And that's where politics comes into it. Sebastian, thank you. That was the Politico journalist Sebastian Whale. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, for a look at what effects climate change is having on fishing and the politics surrounding it, and not all the developments are negative. I'm joined from Dallas by Catherine Hayhoe, Global Chief Scientist for the Nature Conservancy, a distinguished professor at Texas Tech University and the author of Saving Us, a climate scientist's case for hope and healing in a divided world. Uh, Catherine, first of all, when we talk about the climate crisis, we tend to think about the land because that's what we live on. But because of that, are we not talking enough about the effect climate change is having on the oceans and the creatures that live in them? I believe that we are. And I think the main reason is just what you said. We live on land, but land only makes up 30% of the planet. And when you look at what's happening in the ocean in terms of climate change, 
it's so stunning that when people hear about it, they often say, well, why aren't we talking about it more? And the answer, I, the only answer I can think of is because we're not dolphins. We don't live in the ocean because if we did, that's all we'd be talking about. Let me give you two specific examples. So all the carbon emissions that we produce, about 25% of those are actually going into the ocean, making the ocean more acidic. And all the extra heat that's being trapped inside the climate system by the heat trapping gases that we produce that are building up, wrapping an extra blanket around the planet, causing it to warm, almost 90% of that heat is going into the ocean. Well, this must be having an effect on the things that live in the ocean, which are the primary subject of this week's episode. But are we able to quantify what effect it is having on the things which live in the ocean? Yes, we are. So the biggest impacts that we are seeing right now is because of the heat. Just to give you an example, coral reefs are home to 25% of the biodiversity in the ocean. They have an essential role acting as nurseries for many species that we humans depend on for coastal economies, for food. And coral reefs are increasingly being stressed, bleached, and even dying as a result of marine heat waves. Back in June 2021, there was a record-breaking heat wave along the western coast of the United States with wildfires and extreme heat all the way from British Columbia down through Washington State and Oregon. But that was also a marine heat wave, and it led to the death of an estimated billion marine and sea creatures. We are seeing massive shifts in ocean populations moving poleward to find cooler waters. All around the world, we see evidence of the huge impact of human choices on our oceans and in turn back on us. And that inevitably does end up having a political and economic effect, right? Because these are fish stocks that a lot of places have come over the centuries to become reliable on. And they're starting to discover that those are not their fish stocks anymore. They're the fish stocks of a country a bit further north or a bit further south. Exactly. In fact, according to the United Nations, over 3 billion people depend on the ocean as their primary source of protein. And especially in a lot of low-income coastal communities, that is the primary economic driver and in some cases even the primary food resource. And so as that shifts, you're right, it leaves some with a, you know, oh, when did this arrive? Abundance. But it's leaving many more, especially those who are living in more vulnerable areas, with less. Which does prompt what is always the big question where climate is concerned, which is how fixable is any of this if we start out from the point at which we have reached? Well, the metaphor I like to use to explain this is a swimming pool. Not just a regular swimming pool, but an above ground swimming pool. That's what I grew up with in my backyard when I was young. And there was just enough water in the pool that my toes could just touch the ground. The swimming pool is like our atmosphere. And we had a perfect level of heat trapping gases in our atmosphere that kept us at just the right temperature for life. Our toes could just touch the ground. But then at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we stuck a giant hose in the pool and we've been turning that hose up every year. During the first year of the pandemic, we turned it down 7% and then we turned it right back up again. So what do we have to do to stop the water from rising? We have to turn off the hose but our pool also has a drain and that drain is nature. And we can make that drain take up up to 30% of the carbon we've produced. So making the drain bigger is also essential and that's how we can take even more water out of the pool, but our toes don't touch the ground anymore. So we have to learn how to swim. We have to stop making it so bad because we're making it worse and worse and worse. 
But then once we've stopped making it so bad by turning off the hose, then we can figure out how can we help each other and the natural environment learn how to swim better. And also how can we invest in making our drain bigger so it starts to take some of that carbon back out of the atmosphere. Does the work that I know you've been doing with the Nature Conservancy in Barbados and the Marshall Islands potentially serve as some sort of model that could be exported more broadly? Absolutely. So as you know, I'm the chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy, which is the world's largest conservation organization. We work in over 80 countries around the world, including many across the EU and in the UK. And a lot of what we do is look at how we can help nature adapt and how nature can help us adapt. So for example, many small island states and coastal nations have huge riches and wealth of biodiversity, but they have crippling national debt. And so helping countries like Belize and Barbados and the Seychelles and Gabon is one of the most recent ones, restructure their national debt for a lower interest rate if they will take the money they save and set aside, in the case of Barbados, 30% of their marine area as protected area. Or Ecuador just had one recently, which they used the savings to protect the Galapagos Islands, which, as you know, is a unique biodiversity hotspot. This is a way to help us help nature. And then in the Marshall Islands, tuna is one of the primary sources of their economy, of their revenue. But in the fish industry, there's often so many middle stages between the actual fisherman and then the final consumer that the fisherman only gets maybe this much of the profit. So the Nature Conservancy teamed up with the Republic of the Marshall Islands to create a fully sustainable tuna company where you know exactly how the tuna were caught. They were caught in a sustainable manner, consistent with the Marine Stewardship Council principles, and they go directly with no middle person to Walmart who has guaranteed to purchase all of the tuna that they provide. So it's investing in people's local incomes on a warmer planet, but doing so in a sustainable way that will maintain the fish stocks for future generations, instead of forcing them to overfish today just so they can live and put food on the table, which means there won't be any fish tomorrow. Do those programs and the success that they have had, have they engaged slash excited noticeably the politicians and the populations of those places? Because it is ultimately decisions made by people that are going to solve this problem if indeed the problem is going to be solved. And if examples like that can catch popular imagination, that could be a way forward, couldn't it? Oh, they absolutely do. In fact, some of the best ambassadors for these types of strategies are the prime ministers, the presidents, the ministers of these countries like Mia Motley of Barbados, who can speak firsthand about the benefits of these actions. And so just to give you an example, at the big climate meetings, you know, that we have every year, there's one coming up in end of November this year. Our CEO, Jen Morris, the CEO of the Nature Conservancy, as she's walking down the hall, I have seen ministers and prime ministers and presidents coming up to her saying, we want to be the next one. We want to be the next nature swap. How do we make this happen? Because what we do is we serve as a connector. We help to find the financing and we help to find and evaluate the potential use for that financing and bring together sort of like a matchmaker, bring together those two parties. So the interest is off the charts, but we need, I think we've estimated we need about six thousand of these to meet our biodiversity and climate goals by 2030. So we have a long way to go. But my hope is that these early wins will catalyze much more rapid action.
Catherine, thank you. That was the climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe. Her book, Saving Us, a climate scientist's case for hope and healing in a divided world, is available now in hardback. This is The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. In most countries, the position of fisheries minister is not regarded as an especially prestigious appointment. In Iceland, it may be the most important job. Marine produce accounts for 40% of Iceland's exports by value. Our final guest held that job from 1999 to 2005. Arnie Matheson has also been Iceland's Minister of Finance and is now Senior Advisor at Iceland Ocean Cluster. He joins us from Reykjavik. First of all, how high pressure a job is being Minister of Fisheries in Iceland of all places? Given the nature of Iceland's economy, it must be one of the most important jobs in the country. Yes, I must agree with that. I'm probably... During my time, it was uh, relatively even more important. We then had a higher share of the economy or in the terms of external currency earnings. The financial sector was growing quite rapidly then, but the tourism sector had not started growing as it it has done now. It was a, a larger part of the economic concerns. What kind of specific issues come up in the job? What kind of problems does a, an Icelandic Minister of Fisheries need to manage? Ooh, there are all kinds of problems. But the big decisions are the, the quota decisions. The decision on how much fish is caught of any one species is in the hands of the fisheries minister. That's just his decision to make. So the future of the stocks basically depends on these decisions because if you get it wrong, the effects are going to be reverberating into the the future. And as the case was during my time, I was fisheries minister for six, six and a half, half years. And at the beginning, the scientists realized that they had been overestimating the the stock for a period before. So the first decision that I had to take was to cut the stocks very dramatically. And I I had to do that two years in a a row and and then keep it stable. And I only managed once in these six years to increase the cut quota. And even if I had to take these very difficult decisions, we still were re-elected in an election in, during that time, and, and I was re-elected and carried on as fisheries minister in, in spite of that. So th- there is an understanding that you have to take difficult decisions and you have to look into the future and you can't just look on things in the, in the short term. When you're making those decisions, though, is there a lot of cross-party political argument about the rights and wrongs of those? Does it become a political issue? It doesn't necessarily become a cross-party argument because you can say that in most of the parties you have an element of those that are basically against the basic science of fisheries on the one hand and then there are others that are against sort of the the basic sort of politics of the the ITQ system, the, the transferable quota system. It is, however, very much reflected in the discussions you have leading up to these decisions, 
with the, the stakeholders, the vessel owners, the ones running the sort of the industrial sized vessels and the ones running the, the smaller vessels, the fishermen's union, the marine engineers union, and the union of the captains and the first mates. And they have different attitudes and that reflects their different interests. The value of the fishery is quite high, especially on the industrialized vessels. The captains and first mates, and also the marine engineers, they have very high salaries. So a good season, particularly in the pelagic sector, can actually make or break your, your finances looking into the future. However, the deckhands have a lower share of the catch and therefore a, a lower lower salary. So they have to have to look at this over a, a longer term. We're discussing elsewhere in this episode a couple of countries, notably Japan and the United Kingdom, where fishing has acquired great political importance, but it's actually a relatively small industry in both those countries. It doesn't employ that many people. But Iceland's not like that, is it? It's it's very common for most Icelanders at some point in their lives to have a job which has some connection to the fishing industry. It is a very big part of Icelandic culture and Icelandic identity. Yes, yes, it is. It is both a cultural colossus as well as a, an, an economic colossus in our context. And I often say that in a small nation of 360,000 people, you have 360,000 fisheries experts <laughs> because everybody has an opinion. Is it the case, though, that Iceland's fisheries are perhaps becoming even richer as, as fish stocks migrate towards the poles in search of cooler waters? That's actually a, an interesting question, and I, I haven't actually thought about it in, in those terms. Just on a sort of a quick reflection, I, I wouldn't say that that was the case because we are both experiencing stocks that are going up and stocks that are going down because of climate change. And we are experiencing stocks that are going out of our economic waters, exclusive economic waters, and stocks that are coming in. And there are sort of species interactions so that a stock that comes in competes with the stocks that are there already for the, the feed. It's not just free, it will affect other, other stocks. But then when other stocks go out, then that can actually leave something free for others. But it could also mean that a stock that is a, a, a feed supply for another stock and doesn't come in as it used to do, has a, a negative effect. So it's a multidimensional equation but on the on the whole so far the value has been in a balance even though the total catch is probably less now on average in recent years than it was during my time we had done bumper years in in the in the cable and pelagic stock but due to climate change the cable and stock has moved further north and doesn't come as much into our water so we haven't had as good harvest recently with one exception but then the other pelagic stocks are coming in from the the south to a greater extent but they have not made up for it completely also then the, the prawn stocks have been 
affected negatively, both inside the economic zone and, and outside the economic zone. But by and large, prices of fish are sort of gradually going up. So the value has increased because of that, but also because of an effort that we have sort of put in in the sector to increase the value and get more out of the catch and not to waste anything. And a lot of innovations and have been put into place. And, and we are, for instance, here at the Iceland Ocean Cluster, where I work now, working on a project called 100% COD. And in our calculations, we are, we are now up to 98% of utilizing 98% of the total COD. And our ambition is now to bring that into the aquaculture sector and utilize more of the of the fish that is grown on the on the, the, the salmon farms, which are a sector that is in in good progress here in, in Iceland at, at the moment. As I said, a multidimensional equation and things go up and things go down. But on average, partly due to innovation, we are keeping the the, the, the value steady. Arnie Matheson, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of the Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for the Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Soul and Christy O'Gravlax. Christy also produces the Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Monkfish, thanks very much for listening. Until next time time. Goodbye.